Luke 24. So obviously we're taking a break from Colossians to really focus in on the resurrection of Christ for obvious reasons. And I, I do, I want us to zone into this passage of scripture. I want us to think deeply about Christ and I want us to worship him together over this. It's so easy to go through the motions of, you know, Easter considering what that means and just to go through the motions of that. And, and I want us to worship Christ over who he is and what he's done. So Luke 24. We're going to be at verse uh, 1 through 43. So a large passage here. Just starting off, I want to encourage you. Let's, let me just say a few things that would give us the plain sense, a summary. Something that would sort of uh, tell us what to look for as we zone in and read this passage in just a minute, okay? I want to remind you of at least part of the purpose of this passage of Scripture, this account of the resurrection of Jesus, is told to us in chapter 1 of this same gospel, verses 1 through 4, where we're told that Luke is going and getting eyewitness accounts of what had happened in Jerusalem and many other places during this time. And he says that he writes these things that we might have certainty. So I want us to go after that this morning. Go after certainty of the things that we have been taught. That's what it says in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 1 of, of Luke here. That, that he wrote these things that you might have certainty of the things that you have been taught. So let me just mention a few things. This passage that we're about to read, verse 1 through 43, it really could be broken down into two sections. Section number one would be verse 1 through 12, where we get eyewitness accounts to the empty tomb of Christ, the empty tomb where Christ was buried, but they, he is there no more. And the second section that it could be broken down into would be verses 13 through 43, where we get the eyewitnesses to uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and eyewitnesses that, that saw them. We really get three. There's many uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and eyewitnesses, but we get three of those in the last section, verse 13 through 43 of, of Luke 24. That we hear about two guys on the road, <clears throat> excuse me, on the road to Emmaus, one of them named Cleopas and his friend saw Christ. We see number two, the account of Simon Peter. It's mentioned to us very briefly that he saw Christ. An eyewitness account there. And then third, we see that Christ actually appears to all of them, the 11 and several people that were with the 11. So we get these eyewitness accounts to the resurrection appearance. So let me just try to summarize the, the flow of the way this is laid out. And then we're going to read it together. Okay. So the way this goes down is on the first day of the week. Okay. Very early in the morning. So a early Sunday morning, the third day after Christ was crucified. We have women who, who are a part. They're a part of the, the company that came with Jesus from Galilee. And they show, up at, they show up at the tomb of Jesus the third day after he was crucified to care for his body. And they find out that the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there early in the morning on the first day of the week. They're confused about this. They're scared. Angels appear to them and they report to them that the reason the tomb is empty is because Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay. And so they take this report, they take this news and they carry it back to the 11 and those who are with, with them. They report it to uh, back in Jerusalem to, to the 11 and those who are with them. And they report this to unbelieving ears. Faithless people hear the news 
of the empty tomb. So Peter, okay, Peter and some of his disciples in response to that, they sprint, they take off. That's what you would do, right? If, if you heard Christ had risen from the dead and you happen to know where he was buried, you would run to that tomb as well, right? And so Peter runs with several others. They run to the tomb and they get to the tomb and they find out that it's true. And they're astounded at this, that the tomb is actually empty. Now, that exact same day, so flow of thought in Luke 24, about to read it. That very same day, after all this stuff is going on, the first day of the week, that very same day, a couple of followers of Christ who were a part of all this, who heard the accounts from those women that the tomb was empty, who heard the account from Peter that the tomb was empty, two of those men take a seven-mile journey to a place outside of Jerusalem called Emmaus. And we don't know the reason that they left. Uh, they, maybe they're unbelieving and tired of this, and they're fleeing this, they're... Savior, who they thought was Savior, has died. But either way, we know that they're headed, uh, they're headed to Emmaus. Okay? And in that time, Jesus appears resurrected to these two men. They wig out. They say, this is awesome. They take, they, they, they take the, the seven-mile journey that same night back into Jerusalem. Okay, So they did, what's a, I think, a, two 5Ks, seven miles, right? Two 5Ks out. Two 5Ks in, what is that? Marathon maybe? I have no idea. I don't run. But either way, they, they, they run this journey back in to Jerusalem. They report it. And when they, when they get to the 11 and the other disciples that are there, what they find is they're already gathered together. And they're saying, guys, he's appeared to Simon. Jesus, risen from the dead, has appeared to Simon Peter. And then they throw in their story too. You won't believe it. He appeared to us too. And they throw in... In their story as well. And you imagine as they're gathered up. As they're discussing these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. All of a sudden Jesus shows up in the midst of them. Resurrected from the dead. So I want us to read this. This is a long passage of scripture. I, I encourage you. You know as, as our brother Dustin says often. That this is the most important part. Most important thing you'll hear in the next few minutes, it's in the next hour. So I, I, want, I want you to zone in to what's here in Luke 24, verse 1 through 43, as we read this together. Okay, you got an idea of the flow of thought? And let's look at it together. Verse, verse 1. <clears throat> but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, that's the women who came with Christ, they went to the tomb. Taking the spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body. I love that. They didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling garments. That's two shining angels if you study this. And as they were frightened... And bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise. Don't you remember he told you he was going to do this? Verse eight. And they remembered his words 
And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. They went to all of them, gathered together there. They told them. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. It lands on faithless, unbelieving ears. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. And that closes the account of the empty tomb. They're marveling. They haven't seen Christ, but they know that he's not in the tomb. And then we move to the post-resurrection appearances. Verse 13. That very day, same day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Can you imagine that? These two guys walking on this seven mile journey, about a two or three hour walk. And they're taking this walk and they're talking about what happened with Christ and and the fact that Christ had died and the fact that these women had come back and reported that he's not in the tomb. What's going on here? Can you imagine them talking over this? Verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing them. In the sovereignty of God, God holds back their vision from seeing him for a moment. He wants a few things to happen before he reveals himself fully. And he, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you, as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So they got a sad version of everything that's happened. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? You see, Jesus' life was not lived in obscurity. It wasn't some hidden life. It was a famous life, famous death. Everyone knew about this. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet. Isn't that a sad phrase? He was in the past a prophet, mighty indeed. And word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped. They've lost that hope now. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this. It's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women... Of our own company, of our company, amazed us. So they were there when the women brought this report that morning. They were at the tomb early in the morning, verse 23. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. I love that phrase. The women come back saying, he's not dead. He is alive. He's living right now. Verse 24, some of those who were with us, we know Peter and several others, went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
And he said to them, Jesus speaks to them, listen, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That's the death and resurrection of Christ. Suffer these things and enter into his glory. Didn't the prophet speak about these things? Jesus says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. How beautiful would that have been? Heartburning revelation from Christ as he goes from Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament. And he says, here I am. Look at this. Look at who I am. Verse 28. So they drew near the village to which they were going. So they're coming to Emmaus now. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it's toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. (laughs) They said to each other, they look at each other. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, the same night. It's evening time. In the morning all this happened. Christ has revealed himself in that same night. They're taking the two or three hour journey now. I imagine they go a little bit faster and they take the double five K back. And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed and He's appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Don't you love that? Jesus appears from the dead. What's he going to What's the first thing he's going to say? Peace to you. But they are startled, frightened, and thought they saw a spirit. They're treating him like a ghost. And he, and he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me. And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy. While they still disbelieved for joy. That's like saying, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. And they were marveling. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? You didn't expect that, did you? Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. He said, see, look, look, look at me. I'm right here. I'm not a ghost. Look at me. Touch me. Resurrected from the dead. I will eat in front of you. That you might see. 
So Christ is risen from the dead. I want to mention four things about this passage of scripture. Uh, one is the foretelling of the resurrection. Uh, two is the power of the resurrection. Three is the graciousness of the resurrection. And fourth, the demands of the resurrection. So let's start with the foretelling of the resurrection. <clears throat> One of the amazing things about the death and resurrection of Jesus is that it was foretold beforehand that it would happen. It was already said that it would happen. It wasn't so much a surprise. He said that it was going to happen and it happened. So Jesus himself told his disciples clearly and repetitively that he was going to die for their sins and he was going to rise again on the third day. He told them that over and over again. It's the reason the angel, we just read it. The angel looked at them and says, don't you remember what the Lord told you? Don't you remember what he told you? And even prior to the direct words of Jesus, we can read into our Old Testament. And we can see that it was foretold in our Old Testament that Christ would die and that he would rise again. Let's look back at that verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus points them back to the prophets. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, his death, and enter into his glory, his resurrection? And he said, I'll show it to you. And beginning in that Old Testament, and beginning in Moses and all the prophets, Genesis to Malachi, he expounds to them in all the scriptures on that walk to Emmaus, the things concerning himself, especially his death, his suffering, and his entering in to his glory. So think about that death and the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament documents. Now, why? Why did Jesus why did, why did God foretell these things for us? One is because he's gracious to us and he's good to us, right? That he allows us to have these things beforehand that we might make some determination of what's true and what's false. And what an amazing reality that prophecies are being fulfilled in the life of Christ. And so he allows us to see this beforehand. Also, it's supposed to produce in us this foretelling in the Old Testament, the resurrection of Christ and other things about Christ. It's supposed to produce in us a heart-burning worship for Him. Did not our hearts burn within us while, we, while He spoke to us and opened the Scripture to us on the road? Now, where do we see the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament? Where do we see the resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament? It's not as explicit as it is in the New Testament. The Old Testament is like the resurrection of Jesus concealed. It's there, but it's concealed. And the New Testament, the New Testament is like the, the resurrection revealed. It's open, the, the, the doors open wide to see it, okay? And there's some specific verses that you could point to. You could point to Isaiah 53 for a specific verse of the resurrection of Christ. Or Psalm 16, which Peter, Paul, they, they quote this verse, a specific um, verse about the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament. But what I want us to see is that from Genesis to, Re uh, Genesis to Malachi, the whole Old Testament, you have this unfolding revelation of who the coming Christ would be. And if you understand that unfolding revelation, there's two major things that you see. One, you see that this coming King, this coming Christ is going to be the King that reigns for how long? Forever. And then you also see that He's going to be the one that dies. 
Now, how do these two things come together? And you have to ask yourself that. I'm reading the Old Testament and it's, and it's unfolding this revelation of the ones to come. And he's going to live forever, but he's going to die. And how do I reconcile these two things? Abraham had a similar problem. God told Abraham, that son, that very son, Isaac, right there, he's going to be the one that continues your line. Now kill him. He's going to continue your line, but kill him. And you read in Hebrews 11 and you find out the, the, the conclusion. It says, it says, Abraham concluded that God would raise him from the dead. And in the same way, you read this Old Testament revelation of Christ. He's going to live forever as king, and yet he's going to die. And you must come to this conclusion that he's going to die, but he will not stay in the tomb. He will not be left in corruption, but he will rise and reign as king. And so we see the resurrection in the Old Testament. I want us to try to do just a very, to the glory of Christ, I want us to do a mini version of what Jesus did. When he walked in from Moses and all the prophets, uh, telling them about the things about Christ, specifically his suffering and his entering into his glory and his resurrection. Let's do a very small version of that. I want us to glorify Christ as we think. I want our hearts to burn within us as we think about this Savior that was prophesied beforehand. Genesis chapter 1. You don't have to flip there, but Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we get the creation, how Jesus creates the world in Genesis 1. Genesis 2, how he creates humans, he creates man and woman, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3, we see the fall of man, where mankind rebel against their creator. They sin against God. We turn away from him. We turn to our own way. We set up ourselves as God. That's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis Chapter 3, and immediately in Genesis chapter 3, we get an unfolding of the Messiah, the Christ, who's going to come. And what does it say about him in Genesis 3.15? It says there's one coming that's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush the head of the one who tempted you, Adam and Eve. He's going to crush Satan. So we already in Genesis 3, already right after the fall of man, know that there's one coming. But what do we know about him? We know he's the head crusher of Satan. And so we keep reading in Genesis and we get Genesis 4, Genesis 5. We realize a son is born to Adam and Eve, a son named Seth. And we think, is he the one? Is Seth the one? No, he's not the one. We see a genealogy that goes from Seth to Noah and Noah to Abraham. And this genealogy laid out. Is Abraham the one? Is he the head crusher, the one that's coming as deliverer, as Messiah, as Christ? And Abraham's not the one because in Genesis 12, 3, God promises Abraham, Abraham, in your lineage, in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so in other words, we know that the one coming is going to be the head crusher of Satan and the one who blesses all nations. God gives the same promise to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, 4. And to Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28, 14, that in your seed, all nations will be blessed. There's coming one that's the head crusher. There's coming one that's going to bless all the nations. And then, and then Jacob has 12 sons. Will it be one of them? He has 12 sons. One of those sons' name is Judah. And you get to Genesis chapter 49. And you find out that it's said about Judah. Judah, from your line is going to be a king forever. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. 
A king forever has come out of your lineage. So we, we end Genesis and what do we know? That there's one coming through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. The head crusher, the nation's blesser. And the one who's going to reign as king forever and ever. And we know that he's coming. And so Genesis ends. And we got a promise there that's hanging. And this family through whom the Christ is coming is left in Egypt. And they're in Egypt there for 400 years. And then we get to Exodus. And by this time that family has become a nation. And those 12 sons have become 12 tribes. One of those tribes being Judah through whom the Christ is coming. And this people is delivered out of Egypt and brought into a land that God would give them. It's the exodus of these people. And it includes Judah through whom the Christ is coming. Eventually these people, they get into their own land and they have a king. And the king that they have, his name is David. And guess where he's from? He's from Judah. Even Bethlehem, Judah. And David, this king from Bethlehem, Judah, is he the one? Is he the head crusher? Is he the eternal king? No, because God gives him a promise that David is still to come. And through your lineage in 2 Samuel 7, through your lineage, David, is coming one who's going to sit on the throne forever as king. He's coming. Eternal king is coming. God keeps telling him this. And then the lineage of David is traced. All the way through the Old Testament, through those kings of Judah and through others after they're taken captive into Babylon. And we've got the lineage of Judah and of David taking place all the way until it meets Christ in the New Testament. And we see Christ who is going to be the one who reigns as king forever. And I want to mention something similar to what Dustin said just a moment ago. If this is all we had, that'd be a problem. If this was it, it'd be a problem. Then here's this king that's going to reign forever as king, the perfect one, the holy one, the Christ. But what's the problem with this? That we're sinful humanity that deserve death. We deserve his wrath. We deserve judgment in hell because we've sinned against this king of glory. And so praise God that the Old Testament does not just tell us about an eternal king. It tells us other things about this one that is to come. Such as he's going to die as a substitute for sinners. Like in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to Isaiah 53. Glory in Christ. Listen, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But listen, this one is to come. He's pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Not his own sin, but ours. He's crushed for our iniquities. It goes on to say that the iniquity of us all is going to be laid upon this king. Verse 7 describes him, the eternal king, as a, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Verse 8 says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He died. He's going to die. He's going to be cut off from the land of the living. Stricken for what? For the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Remember this same prophet, Isaiah 53, this same prophet has already spoken about this one to come. He said, unto us a son 
is born. Unto us a child, a child, a son is going to be given. And His name is going to be called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's going to reign on the throne of David forever. There will be no end to His government. And that same one that He says is going to live forever, He says right here that He's going to die a sinner's death. Why? Verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So here he is, the Christ, who's going to die on a cross, on a cross, to take the place of sinners that deserve it, to take the wrath that we're supposed to take. And he's going to die in our place, but he's going to reign forever. So he will rise. He will rise. And so we see this foretold all through the Old Testament. Let me talk to you now about the power of the resurrection. The power of the resurrection. Look at verse Luke 24, verse 26. You've heard me say this a few times. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? That's his death. And enter into his glory. That's his resurrection. So they're wondering what's going on here. Why is he dead? And he says, I'll not the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory. So the resurrection of Jesus here is described as a powerful entering into his glory. Entering into his glory. The resurrection of Jesus was a powerful declaration that Jesus is who he claimed to be. You don't have to believe that, that he's glorious, that he is who he claimed to be. Just kill him. Just kill the Christ. And then he rises from the dead. And the grave can't hold him. And you go, maybe I should bow down to this one. The resurrection of Jesus was a powerful testimony, a powerful declaration that he is who he claimed to be. Romans 1.4 says this. Romans 1.4. He was declared to be the Son of God in power... According to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He's declared to be the son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. It's a powerful proclamation that he is who he claimed to be. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the son of God in power. Do you understand what that means? He's the son of God in power. Think about this. What does that mean? Think about it with me for a moment. God is Trinity, right? God is the Trinity. He's, there's one God, only one God, but there's three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There are three persons. The Father is fully God. It's not parts of God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. So there's three gods, right? No, there's one God. One God, three persons, mind-blowing. This is what our Bible says about who our God is. Now, the Old Testament tells us that the second person of that triune God, namely God the Son, takes on flesh. He, is, he becomes incarnate. He takes human nature onto His divine nature. He doesn't lose His Godness, but He's fully God and fully man. Mind-blowing. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm that one. 
I'm the one who is the son of God in power, the son of God incarnate. Now, how do we know that that's true? How do we know he really is? He rose. He's not in the tomb. He rose from the dead, declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Now listen, we don't tend to think about Jesus like this. For some reason, we're much more comfortable with, with, with gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But not so much with this Jesus. What about the one who is the Son of God in power, according to Romans 1.4? What about Him? What about the Revelation chapter 1 Jesus? Eyes like fire, face shining like the sun, voice like the sound of mighty waters. And John falls down in fear and trembling before the Son of God in power. What about him? What about that Christ risen from the grave? What about the one who raised the dead when he walked on earth? What about the one who rebuked the mighty storm? Who healed the lepers? Who made the world scholars look ignorant. Who made the world leaders tremble in fear. Who put a whole battalion of, of, of soldiers on their back before he allowed them to crucify him. What about the one who walked willingly into the eye of the storm of God's wrath for you? What about him? What about the one risen from the dead? He lived to tell about taking the wrath of God. What about the king of kings? The Lord of lords, the Lord of all, the King of glory, the one to whom everyone must bow down in allegiance. And if you do not, your knees will be crushed one day and they'll buckle under the rod of iron that he wields at the judgment seat. What about him? This is Christ risen from the grave. Christ raised no longer to see corruption. And how do we know Jesus is that one? How do we know that about him? Is there another one who has fulfilled these prophecies? Is there another one who has risen from the grave? Seen by eyewitnesses, the tomb is empty. Is there another one like that? How do we know this is the one? Because he's risen and alive right now as we talk about him. We worship over his word in his presence. Right now, Jesus, think about it. Fully God, fully man. One of your own stock in heaven. And he's reigning as king. He has entered into his glory. Luke 24, 26. <clears throat> I want to talk to you now about the graciousness of the resurrection. And the graciousness <clears throat> of this resurrection. Let me tell you specific, more specifically what I mean. Jesus has been gracious. God has been gracious in giving us a resurrection. But I mean even the graciousness that he would lay out this trail of evidence that we might see and know and believe that he is the one. We just made some mighty proclamations about Christ Jesus and how gracious, how gracious, how kind of him to lay out a trail of evidence that we might see it. And then we might believe. Let me give you a picture of this in the life of Christ. We read about it in Luke 24. If you just kind of glance at verse 36 through 43. Think about verse 36. They're all talking together about seeing Jesus. And he appears. He appears in their midst. How gracious is that? He told them he was going to rise. 
Surely the empty tomb is enough for them. And yet in grace and mercy and kindness, He appears in the midst of them to give them a trail of evidence. He shows Himself. How gracious is this? They don't deserve it, right? He's already told them. They're unbelieving. He told them again. They're unbelieving. He sent more eyewitnesses. They're unbelieving. They don't deserve this. They don't deserve this. And yet He shows up. And then when He shows up, how do they respond? They respond with fear. And they dishonor Him. And they treat Him like a ghost. And they're doubting. And He has every right in that moment, Christ, to forsake them. To leave them. To condemn them to hell forever. As unbelieving people. And in that moment, what does He do? How does He respond? Listen to the kindness. See, my hands, you, this unbelieving people, look at my hands and my feet. This is visible evidence. Touch me, he says. Tangible evidence. Come, touch me. Listen, do you have something to eat? I will eat in front of you that you might see this, that I'm here. How gracious this is of Christ to do this for undeserving people. That deny him. Now I want you to see it in Christ. I want you to see his graciousness right there. But I want you to see it on a larger scale. In the resurrection. Not just to those disciples. But in the resurrection as a whole. To all of us. He has shown himself kind. He has shown himself gracious. In leaving us trails of evidence. We do not deserve. The visual evidence. The tangible evidence of Christ. We don't deserve that. In fact, we only deserve one thing from God. And what is it? We deserve hell. We deserve His wrath because of our sinfulness. All we deserve from Him, all that we have earned from Him, is that He would destroy us forever in the lake of fire. And yet He's gracious. And yet He's kind. And He he lures, He woos us in with this trail of evidence that He leaves. I want you to see the resurrection as Him saying, look at me. See my hands? See my feet? Come touch me. I want you to see it like that. The graciousness of God, okay? Now, all of us at some point have said something, maybe within ourselves, and maybe you've said it out loud, I don't know, but said something like, um, man, I, 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 wish, I wish God would just give us proof. I wish God would just give us proof. To which the Bible replies, you fool, slow of heart to believe. He has. Look at the resurrection. Look at the historical evidence. Look at the empty tomb. Look. Open your eyes. He came. He actually walked among us. Died and rose from the grave and left behind evidence. What He has done this. Now, is that the way that we should think about the resurrection? Yes. It's not the only way. But it is the way we should think about the resurrection. In fact, the way the resurrection accounts are laid out in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not these superstitious, spectacular versions of it. Okay? What we get is a very evidential, matter-of-fact, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. It's laid out like evidence to you. In Acts 17, verse 31, it says that He has given proof of this to all by raising Him from the dead. It's proof. It's evidence. The resurrection. That's the way that we should look at it. It's at least a way that we should look at the resurrection. So what I want us to do is I want us to consider very fast, okay? Because I just want to stir you up to further study. Very fast, I want us to consider some pieces of this, of of how you would view it as gracious evidence from God, okay? And this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
Uh, I commend you to further study. Tip of the iceberg here. But here's, here's a way that I think it's helpful to do this. Let's, let's talk about what are the hard facts that everybody must concede to. I don't care what your background is, where you're from, uh, what your religious background or non-religious, what, it doesn't matter. Everyone must concede certain facts and then let's work our way out from there. I want to just give you very quickly eight of these, okay? Very quickly give you eight of these. Number one, is the life of Jesus in first century A.D.? Just what I'm saying is you must concede that Jesus, a man named Jesus, lived in the first century A.D. Tons of historical evidence for this. You don't have to concede that he is God, but it would be intellectual suicide for you to say he did not exist. A man named Jesus, historical evidence existed in first century A.D. Quickly to the next one. Number two, his fame. You must concede his fame during his lifetime. Biblical sources, extra biblical sources speak about the fame of this one. In other words, he did not live a life of obscurity, a secret life that only a few people could look into. He lived a life before the public eyes, what I'm trying to get you to see. You must concede that. Intellectual suicide not to. Number three, you must concede that there were claims that he lived a miraculous life from his contemporaries. Hear me out. You must concede, okay, what's your background is, that there were claims that he lived a miraculous life, and those claims came from his contemporaries. In other words, it's not legends about Jesus that developed over centuries of time, but his contemporaries, his, the people around him, the people who saw him and knew him or knew about him, even that did not believe in him, even Jewish presence in that time that hated him, can see that he lived that there were claims that he lived a miraculous life. Okay, now here's what I'm saying. You 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 can choose not to believe the 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 credibility of these claims, but you you cannot deny that the claims were there from his contemporaries. What does that mean? That they were there, that he lived a miraculous life. And if you say those contemporaries' claims are not legitimate, then I hope you've done your research on discrediting their credibility. Okay, that's Number three. Number four is you must concede his death. You must concede his death. Again, it's well documented. Uh, intellectual suicide to say that he didn't exist or that he did not die on a cross in first century A.D. It's a very well known fact. That's the reason that Cleopas and our passive scripture looked at, at Jesus before he knew it was Jesus. And what did he say? Are you the only one? That hadn't been in, in Jerusalem. Don't, you don't know what's going on in this time. It's a very well attested fact that he, that he died. Now you don't have to believe that his death was special. You don't have to believe that his, his death was, was a saving death. A saving work. But you must concede that he was crucified. But if the, if the evidence of the eyewitnesses to the resurrection proves to be true. Then I would encourage you to believe that his death was special. It meant something. And to ignore it means destruction. Number five, you must concede his burial in a tomb just outside of Jerusalem. Again, a well-recorded fact in history. Remember, he didn't die in obscurity. Okay, and so what I'm getting at is people knew where he was laid to rest. To say that he wasn't, that he didn't die and was buried in a tomb in just outside Jerusalem, to say that is to say that my grandfather is not buried in Pearl, Mississippi. He is. And so just a real fact that everyone must Concede. Number six, and we'll get a little more detail here. Number six, 
You must concede that the tomb was empty the third day after Jesus was crucified. You must concede that the tomb was empty the third day after Jesus' body was put there. Now, you don't have to believe that he rose. You don't have to believe that. You, you, could, you, know, you, you can come up with some other reasons, but you must concede that it was empty. There's eyewitness, eyewitness testimony to this. Luke 24, verse 1 through 12 is, is a part of that eyewitness testimony that the tomb was empty, plus many more eyewitness testimonies. We got uh, a testimony from his enemies, the enemies of Christ. The enemies of Christianity testify that the tomb was empty. They won't tell you that he rose from the dead. The Jews of that day won't tell you that he rose from the dead. But they clearly claim that it was empty. Think about it. Those enemies of Christ who wanted to stop Christianity before it began. And that is what they wanted to do. All they had to do is do what in that moment? When they started saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. And Christianity began to explode off the back of the proclamation that he is risen. What did they need to do in that moment? All they had to do is produce a body. Why couldn't they produce a body? Because he's risen indeed. He's risen from the dead. Enemy testimony is there. Okay, so, so again, you can make up your own reasons for why the tomb was empty, but you must know that it was empty. His, his body was not found there. And I say that's strong evidence that he is risen from the dead, just like he said he was. I, I was talking to somebody this week about the stone being rolled away. Why, why did God roll the stone away? Was that to let Jesus out? Or was it to let us in that we might see? How gracious is that? That God, just like Jesus, reached out his hand saying, see. Look, look, it touched me. Jesus, God himself, rolls back the tomb and says, look. Look at this. Seven. You must concede that there were claims that people saw Jesus after his death, burial, and resurrection. You must see that there were claims that they saw him after his death, burial, and resurrection. We see three of those claims in chapter 24, verse 13 through 43 that we just read. Um, and there are many others as well. Now, now again, you, you might not believe those claims. You might not trust those claims. But you must believe that there were claims, eyewitness testimonies of the post uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in this time. An example of that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing a letter to people that live in Corinth on the other side of the Mediterranean. Okay, And he's writing to them and he says, listen, Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He's buried and he rose from the dead the third day according to the scriptures. You say, how do you know that? He keeps going. He's writing to these Corinthians that live above the Mediterranean. He says, well, he was seen by Peter. You trust him? And then by the 12. And then he says, and he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. You see what he's doing? He's telling them there were eyewitness accounts that saw him risen after he had died and was buried in that tomb. And then he says this. Some of them have fallen asleep, but most of them are still living. And why is he telling them that? He's telling these Corinthians that they, they're not like Peter. They can't hear the news of the resurrection and sprint immediately to that tomb and see if his body's there. They can't do that. They live in court. And so he tells them, listen, most of these eyewitnesses are still alive. Won't you cross the Mediterranean and go there 
Look at the empty tomb. I'll show it to you. Go to those eyewitnesses and you decide. Are they credible or are they not? There were eyewitnesses. There were claims of eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Now again, you don't have to believe those claims. But I hope you have good reason for counting those testimonies as not credible. Because I could give you tons of reasons why I believe that they are credible. I believe them. I believe the testimony. Last one, number eight. You must concede the massive movement among first century Jews in and around Jerusalem to begin to worship Jesus as God. Okay? It just happened. Just a fact. The first century Jews in and around Jerusalem begin in massive loads, begin to bow down to Jesus as King, as Messiah, as God incarnate, the Son of God in power. They begin to do that. Now think about that for a minute. Now you, you could come up with another reason why that happened, but you, you cannot deny that that's what happened, okay? You can think of another reason, but, but you can't deny that it happened. The question you have to answer is why? Why did this happen? Why did thousands of first century Jews in and around Jerusalem begin to flood to Christ to bow down to him in that time? Were they just stupid or gullible people? And I think evidence shows otherwise. Was there some kind of, uh, some kind of benefit to them becoming Christians? Was there some kind of benefit to that? The evidence proves just the opposite. There, there was actually persecution and cursing that came on them if they did that. So why? Why did so many flood to Christ during that time? Could it be that the tomb was empty? They went and saw it. Could it be that they heard the testimony of the eyewitnesses? Could it, could it be that, that, they, that they heard from those witnesses and they asked many of them, the flood of witnesses that were there, and they believed those credible witnesses? Could it be that Christ had risen from the grave? And therefore, many came to him. Now, I want you to notice that I said three things about these people. First century Jews in and around Jerusalem. First century Jews in and around Jerusalem. Let me tell you why I make that distinction. Number one, because that's just what happened. But also this. First century Jews. Why first century? We're not talking about thousands of people being convinced that hundreds of years ago a man rose from the dead. That would be hard in and of itself. But imagine a man that they knew, a man that they had seen, a man that, that they saw killed and buried. Imagine convincing thousands that he had risen from the dead in his lifetime. In other words, this is not some sort of urban legend. The people were there to test the claims. Also, I said first century, notice I said Jews, Jews. They were a distinct monotheistic people and something very, very dramatic would have had to happen for them to begin to look at a man named Jesus that they saw with their own eyes and bow down and worship him and call him Lord and God. Something very dramatic must have happened. What, what do you think happened? I think he rose. And also I said in and around Jerusalem. So we're not talking about convincing people that live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away where they can't test the claims that a man way over there somewhere rose from the dead. We're talking about convincing thousands of people, thousands of people 
That that man that was in that tomb is risen from the dead and walked on earth again. They could check the tomb. They could speak to the eyewitnesses. How do you convince thousands of this? Unless he had actually risen. I want you to think about all of this as God. This is, again, like I said, tip of the iceberg thinking through this. I encourage you to, I commend you to your own study of these things. And I want to encourage you as you dig in to see the graciousness, the kindness of God to leave these things behind because you have no right. And he has no obligation to give it to you. And yet he does because he's kind and he's good and he's gracious. Last thing very quickly, I want to talk about the demands, the demands of the resurrection. Demands of the resurrection. So as we consider the resurrection of Jesus, what I'm getting out here is what's the demand? How must we respond to this resurrected one? How are we to respond to him? I give you two major things. Number one, we need to be intellectually honest. We must be intellectually honest. God has graciously laid out a trail of evidence for these things. And yet 99% of people that I talk to that reject Jesus have never dug into these things sincerely. So there's a call to be intellectually honest. So many people reject something they don't understand. And that's not intellectually honest. Let me close that response with some words from a man that's much, much, much smarter than I am. J.C. Ryle, who you all know that I love. Listen to what he said about this. Our faith does not depend merely on a set of texts and doctrines. It's founded on a mighty fact. Speaking about the resurrection, which the skeptic has never been able to overturn. The fact of our Lord's resurrection rests on evidence which no infidel can ever explain away. It is confirmed by testimony of every kind, sort, and description. The plain, unvarnished story which the gospel writers tell about is one that cannot be overthrown. The more the account, the account is examined, the more obvious the truth appears. If we choose to deny the truth of their account, we may deny everything in the world. It is not so certain that Julius Caesar once lived as it is that Christ rose again. So we must be, and I would encourage everyone to be, and in body of Christ, encourage others to be intellectually honest about these things. Okay. Second and last point that I'll make as far as what are the demands, how must we respond? We must, it, it must go past our intellects and be a response of our hearts. It has to go past our intellects and be a response of our hearts. I'm reminded of those guys saying, did not our hearts burn within us? As he spoke about those things to us when we were on the road. And then he reveals himself and they're astonished. There must be a heart response to Christ, not just an intellectual response. Just acknowledging facts about Jesus never saved anyone, ever. Believing little facts about Jesus has never saved a soul, ever. Romans 10, 9 says this. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, risen, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
you will be saved. Many people in our culture have acknowledged facts about Jesus. Believe little facts about Jesus. Even facts about the resurrection and the tomb. They've intellectually ascended to those things. And yet they're not saved. And you know that. You see it so obviously in their life. If their life does not change because those who truly come to Christ, it changes their life. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. And so it must move past intellect. Because our major problem is not just intellectual. We are rebellious to God. It's a heart that hates God. A heart that disobeys and rebels against God. And so Romans 10, Romans 10, 9 says, you must look to him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. Heart change has to happen. We rebel against him. and We have to move towards a submission to the resurrected one. We submit ourselves to under the authority of the resurrected one who is raised in power, who rules all of the universe and who rules my life. And this is how we must respond to him. And I want to uh, just close by encouraging anybody here before I pray that if you are lost here. And there's faces here I don't know. I want to encourage you to be those two things. Intellectually honest. Intellectually honest with these things. Dig into these. I told you I've seen so many people that deny Christ. And yet they haven't dug into these things. And at the same time, you can do that all day long. But listen to me. If you still stand before him as believing little facts. And you've been made smarter. Been made smarter by these things. And yet you die one day and you face God and you're still in your sin. It's no good for you. And the Apostle Paul said, he said this, that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are still in our sins. But here's what the opposite truth is. If he did rise from the dead, what does that mean? That if you put your faith in him truly, you're not still in your sins. Your sins are taken away. He's punished for them. And, and this is through repentance, repent. And believe in the gospel is what Jesus said. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for these truths in your word. Thank you for this account. Let us read these words as you speak into us. God, thank you for being so gracious and even, and even all-knowing and powerful to be able to lay out prophecies about these things way before they happen. Thank you for that gracious evidence, Lord. God, thank you for the power put on display and in, in, in your son being raised out of that tomb. We love you, Lord Jesus, as King of glory, as resurrected one. We love you as Son of God, incarnate, in power. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your authority. God, we praise you for your graciousness and the resurrection, Lord. You didn't have to do any of this. You never even had to come, Lord, but you showed grace in that you came to rescue, Lord Jesus. You showed grace in that you died for it. You showed grace in that you were raised from the dead. And you even hold out your hands and you say, see. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your mercy, your kindness to us. And Lord, I pray that every person in this room would come under the demands of you as the resurrected Lord. 
Lord, we look forward to you coming again one day and making all things right. And I just lift up every person in this room, God, that when, when that time comes that you come, you return and you show yourself in fullness of glory, God. I pray that every person in this room will be ready. Make them ready, Lord. God, I pray that if there's any in this room that deny you straight out, oh God, that they would reconsider these claims. God, that you would humble their hearts, that you'd break them low before you and help them to see their own sin and rebellion and they would love you, Lord Jesus, and be saved. God, I pray for those in this room that, that may be in the traps of false conversion. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to their false conversion. Open their eyes, God, to the realities of what's true about them, Lord. Don't let Satan keep them in this, this trap that holds them, thinking that they're okay until they go to hell. God, please deliver them from that. God, I pray for the unconverted children in our church, Lord. God, I pray that you would get them off the fence, Lord. I pray, God, that they would follow you, Lord. Or walk away altogether. But God, I pray you get them off the fence. God, help them to not to see that being on the fence, God, is not something to be admired. Help them to see, God, that every moment that they don't know, every moment that they hold you at an arm's distance, Lord, I pray you help them to see that that is a rejection of you. And Lord, let conviction fall down like rain. And Lord, I pray they come and they bow down before you, Lord Jesus. You've been so gracious to so many unconverted children in this church. Not only have you given them everything that we've talked about, but you've given them parents to love them and teach them your word. God, save those kids. Bring them out of darkness in the light. Cause them to wait no more. Help them to see the urgency. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that they ought to repent and believe in the gospel. And God, I pray for the believers here. That you would encourage us, build us up. You are still alive, Lord Jesus. And we worship you and we love you. Teach us to worship you with deeper and deeper affections. God, equip us. Let this be these things that we're talking about in your word. Let it be for the equipping of the saints to go out into a world that doubts you and hates you. And preach the resurrected Christ. Equip us, God, please. All across this church. In Jesus' name. Amen.